This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 11, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, international news editor Rich Stone talks about finding the source of a nuclear weapon using post-detonation forensics. And David Grimm is here with the roundup of stories from our daily news site. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Sarah Crespi. It's kind of sad that we don't have any stories about having a head cold because I have. this is the froggiest podcast I've ever done. Oh, no. I know. Our first story is on lying, actually, as a national pastime. The broken windows theory, the idea that being surrounded by tidy streets means people are less likely to act in a lawless manner. It's controversial. You know, for example, in the U.S., the jury's still out on whether police action over tiny violations can actually stamp down all types of crime. But is there a relationship between seeing more abstract forms of misbehavior like tax evasion and political corruption and the actions of individuals? That's what this new paper is trying to get at. Right, Dave? How do they decide if people were living in a miasma of corruption? <laughs> well, they surveyed 159 countries around the world. And what they were looking for was data on government corruption, tax evasion, election fraud. These are figures that actually some organizations keep. So they were able to sort of rank the countries by sort of how much corruption was happening at the highest levels. And that's one data set. And then they needed another data set. They needed to look at what they're calling honesty among individuals. Right. How did they get that measure and, and then compare it with this general corruption? Well, so, yeah, they want to see how this would all filter down. And so they actually went to 23 of these 159 countries and they asked college age volunteers to roll a die and then report on the number that came up. Now, the higher the number, the more re the researchers paid the participants. But the participants knew that the researchers could not see what number they had actually rolled. So it was sort of up to the participants to be honest about what number they had rolled. And they did something tricky here. They weren't, there wasn't a hidden camera capturing the die roll in a way that the participants couldn't tell. They actually 
just went to statistics, right? Right, exactly. Um, they knew that when the average number of the reported die rolls was greater than you would expect by chance, then they just sort of figured that meant some people were lying. And how did it shake out when it came to corruption at the national level and at the individual level? Well, it sort of confirmed their hypothesis that they found that in countries with higher levels of corruption, people were more likely to cheat on this dice experiment. Any study like this just requires I ask this question. How do we know there's causation here rather than correlation? <laughs> right. Well, you know, the problem isn't just, you know, a correlation versus causation. It's also just looking at one single measure, at least we should say a potential problem. For instance, this kind of dice rolling is kind of almost like a form of gambling or maybe seen as a form of gambling. And in some of these countries, gambling is taboo. And so that could impact how people sort of respond to the experiment. So it's possible that there are other things going on as well. Next up, we have a story on saving chewing time. Do you spend too much time chewing your food? <laughs> Is your whole evening spent masticating tough roots and fibrous fruits? Then you might be a chimpanzee or one of our ancient ancestors. Apparently, back in the day, way, way back, 2.5 million years ago, human an humans' ancestors probably just sat around chewing their food all day long. But times have changed, right, Dave? That's right. You know, we don't spend as much time chewing our food. In fact, it's estimated that chimpanzees, our closest cousins, spend about six hours a day uh, chewing fruit and the occasional monkey carcass. And we see that difference sort of play out in our anatomy. We know that chimpanzees and some of our ancient human ancestors had very big teeth and very large jaws, much larger than we have. And the thinking went, well, they had those things because they had to spend so much time chewing. And because we didn't, we were able to develop smaller teeth and smaller jaws. Well, our jaws didn't just change. We also started to change how we ate food in terms of cooking and in terms of the onset of tool use. What's the timeline for all these different factors? Well, you know, the timeline's a little bit murky. We think we didn't start cooking food until about 500,000 years ago. At least that's where some of the earliest evidence comes from. Um, but we were eating meat, it's thought, as far back as 2.5 million years ago. So, you know, one thing that would have allowed us to develop smaller jaws is if the meat was easier to chew and cooking would have made it easier to chew. So the question is, we didn't invent cooking until about a half a million years ago. What were we doing for the two million years before that? Right. And apparently we were not chewing up goats with our tiny teeth. <laughs> Just to give a little sneak preview of the method used here. Can you describe who ate what in the laboratory? <laughs> yeah, this is a really fun experiment, or at least it's, it's fun to read about. I don't know how fun it was to participate in. But the researchers basically wanted to see how hard it would have been to chew the type of meat that our ancestors would have had to chew. And that wouldn't really have included cow, which is a much easier meat to chew. It would have included some meat that's goat or goat-like, a tougher meat. And, and so what the researchers did was they, they took a bunch of human volunteers and they glued electrodes all over their face. And then they had them uh, chew goat meat that was either raw and unprocessed, raw and processed with some simple slicing, or cooked. And what they found was that when the meat was 
uncooked, it was pretty much like chewing gum. <laughs> it, just, it took a long, long time to chew. And in fact, when something as simple as slicing the meat uh, or pounding some of the vegetables that the, the, the uh, volunteers also had to eat was done, it reduced the number of chews by about 17%. I mean, that sounds like a lot, but when you're, when you're chewing for hours, potentially uh, 17% is, is a big chunk of time. And so now here comes the theory. We are saving so much time and energy not chewing. What happens to human ancestors as a result? Well, the idea is we could put our energy into other things. You know, if we're not expending that much energy chewing, we don't need such big teeth and such long jaws. And therefore, we could get smaller jaws and a smaller snout actually seems to have freed up space to give us more maneuverable lips, which would have been a key component in forming words. Also, just a smaller head in general is easier to balance, and that would have been important when we were hunting. So it's possible that just this advent of slicing meat with some early tools may have actually played a, a significant role in our evolution. And now this food tools theory bangs right up against this cooking theory, the idea that cooking food saved energy, saved time, made us more efficient at eating. Does this new idea, this new result from the study, overturn the older cooking hypothesis? Well, not if you talk to people who are in favor of the cooking hypothesis. <laughs> and the big question mark here is we know the evidence tells us that we were cooking potentially about a half a million years ago. We don't know if that is sort of when it started or if there is much earlier evidence that will eventually come to light that we were cooking a lot uh, longer before then. And if that's true, then it could still lend support to this idea that it was cooking that really played a major role in uh, helping us uh, chew our food easier and maybe not the advent of slicing tools. Hmm. Okay, there's a few little tidbits from the story that I just can't not have on the podcast. <laughs> um, do you want to? Can we figure out how to talk about them, Dave? Uh, sure. Let's see. It takes 11 hours to eat a monkey. Uh, that's one of the facts <laughs> I want to talk about. And that yes. the researchers themselves actually ate, tried to eat raw goat. Not just they didn't just make the participants do it. They, they did. They did. And one of them actually said. You chew and you chew and you chew and nothing happens. It's almost like <laughs> chewing gum. <laughs> Goat gum. That's awful. <laughs> Lastly, we have a story on sandy plant protection. Plants have kind of a tough gig when it comes to protecting themselves. They cannot run away. That's really the big problem. They just stand there rooted to the soil or wrapped around a tree as a dangerous herbivore just comes browsing over hoping to maybe take a bite. Of course, the plants do have some tactics. They can poison you or an herbivore. They have thorns, things like that. But this is a new one for me, sand. How do plants use sand to defend themselves? Well, that's been a longstanding question. Scientists have long wondered why some plants secrete sticky substances that trap sand on their stems and the leaves. There's been a variety of hypotheses, everything from well, maybe it helps them control their temperature to maybe it helps them protect themselves from storms. But this new study of researchers wanted to see, well, maybe it just makes the plants so unappetizing that they don't get eaten by herbivores. They tested this nicely named idea, sand armor, by <laughs> stripping plants of their protection. How did that work out? Well, what they found was that after two months, the naked plants, and they were looking at a type of verbena in California, 
they had twice the chewing damage of plants that had kept their sandy armor intact. Oh, and to kind of up the ante and say this is not just camouflage, you know, plants that look like dirt maybe wouldn't get eaten. They also used green sand. So even with green sand, they were still avoided by herbivores. But I do wonder, Dave, if animals really have a big aversion to eating sand and dirt. I I mean, it keeps me from eating unwashed spinach, but I'm pretty sure I've seen animals <laughs> eat some pretty gross things. <laughs> well, you know, the thing you got to think about with herbivores is that their teeth are really their most important tool. So if they're eating a lot of sand, it's going to wear down their teeth and really prevent them in the long term from being able to eat at all. So you would think that Sand isn't just gross for them. It could actually be dangerous in some respects. Okay, so what else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Sarah, we've got a story uh, about the ongoing Go tournament. This is an ancient Chinese game of Go. There is a, a match happening this week between a man and machine. This is a one of the top-ranked Go players facing off against an artificial intelligence program and what all this means for the future of artificial intelligence and even the future of how we play some of our favorite board games. Also a story about how memory might work in the brain. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a story about a patent fight over the gene editing technology CRISPR. Also a story about the future of the Zika virus. Is it likely to keep spreading or will it eventually disappear? Be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Sarah. David Grimm is the editor for our online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. This week, Science is publishing a special package on forensics. Rich Stone wrote about a relatively new type of investigation, post-detonation nuclear forensics. Back in 2009, the National Research Council came out with a report talking about all of the weak points about forensic science, about how unreliable many of the techniques are. And we have an overview looking at what that report has triggered a lot of new thinking in the field of forensic science, a lot of new techniques. So that is one impetus for the special report. We look at some of the most interesting forensic science developments of recent years. And one example in the report is the investigation into the deaths of 43 students in Mexico in 2014. You may remember that they were allegedly kidnapped by local mafia and their bodies were burned and their ashes were dumped in a river. Parts of that story have unraveled. And one of our news articles in this week's issue talks about that. And then there's also a story on statistics, which is actually a lot more exciting than it sounds, right? It is exciting. It is exciting because we're talking about people's lives, people's lives who've been ruined basically over flawed interpretations of statistics. There are many examples in forensic science where in the courtroom, statistics are portrayed as more ironclad, 100% proof of guilt, when in fact that's not the case. Even DNA evidence, which is the gold standard, the ability to detect such minute traces of DNA have led to 
false accusations and false convictions, and including, most famously, the student Amanda Knox, who was convicted in Italy of killing her roommate along with her boyfriend, who was also convicted, based on minute traces of DNA that were later overturned by a higher court. All right, let's talk about what you focused on, nuclear forensics. Why did you want to talk about that in this package? Well, I've long been interested in nuclear issues, and I wanted to find out if there was a new trend in nuclear forensics. I'd heard a lot about attempts to try to trace the origins of stolen fissile material, like enriched uranium, but that, I thought, was a relatively well-known story. And as I did my research, I learned about really fascinating cutting-edge work on what's called post-detonation forensics. What is post-detonation forensics? It's looking at how to determine if there was a nuclear bomb that detonated on U.S. soil, how to determine who did it and what kind of bomb it was. This wasn't so mysterious, say, during the Cold War, you know, in the U.S., there'd really be only one suspect. But now... There are many different options to sort through. What are some of the scenarios that are being taken seriously in the field? Well, that's right. Times have certainly changed. In the Cold War, if there was a nuclear strike on the United States, the assumption would have been it was the Soviet Union. And you're talking about attempted annihilation. The U.S. would have responded in kind. That was the prevailing scenario during the Cold War. Since the Cold War ended, it's gotten a lot more complicated. You have many more potential scenarios One might be a bomb stolen from the U.S. arsenal and detonated on U.S. soil. Another possibility would be an enemy state such as North Korea, which has threatened many times, including earlier this week, to nuke the United States. Another possibility, which is probably the most likely, unfortunately, is a terrorist group such as the Islamic State group getting a hold of fissile material and fashioning a very simple bomb. There are many possibilities now, and there's a need to have a forensic approach to determining if there was a nuclear detonation on U.S. soil, who was responsible. Going back in time, I thought this was a really interesting point about how the U.S. and other countries did a lot of underground testing of nuclear weapons. No one was actually trying to figure out what kind of bomb was going off. They knew that. But some of that research can be used today in this post-detonation forensics, right? That's correct. So in the United States and in Soviet Union, China, elsewhere, there were many, many nuclear tests before the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty came into effect in the early 1990s. Now, in the U.S., you had both underground and above-ground tests. Those tests were all aiming to perfect the nuclear weapon and, to some degree, try to determine how to protect people exposed to radiation. There was no real attempt to determine what the potential source of a nuclear weapon might have been. That wasn't the point of the testing and the observation of the tests and the data that was collected during the Cold War. So things have changed quite a bit. What is important is that the sensors that were developed starting in the 1940s, the sensors for observing the nuclear detonation, observing the electromagnetic pulse, the gamma rays, x-rays, light waves, the seismic waves, all the signals that a nuclear detonation emits. These sensors are being modified and used today 
to potentially detect the signals emitted by a nuclear terrorism strike on the United States. In addition to these sensors being updated, what are some of the other approaches that the forensics researchers are are looking into to investigate nuclear incidents? Some of the new approaches that people are taking now include synthesizing artificial fallout. So Mm. scientists in the U.S. National Laboratories are pursuing that. They're using one of the most powerful lasers in the world, the National Ignition Facility in California, to create artificial fallout. And they can use that to be able to test analytical approaches in the event of a nuclear detonation here on U.S. soil. Another team, for example, is producing artificial melt glass. Hmm. So let me explain what melt glass is. You can actually buy melt glass from the first nuclear explosion on U.S. soil. This was the first test called the Trinity Bomb in 1945. It was detonated in New Mexico at the White Sands Missile Base. That's the current status of that site. And it created this greenish glass where the bomb melted the New Mexican desert. So this glass is called Trinitite, and you can buy samples of it. It's the only melt glass from any nuclear test that's available publicly. Didn't we buy some for some of the photography in this issue? We did acquire it (laughs) from from researchers, uh, and I would like to thank Howard Hall's group at the University of Tennessee for providing the milk glass. Beautiful picture of it, and that appears with the story. Now, it's interesting to see exactly how the nuclear detonation, the heat from the detonation, it forms a particular kind of glass depending on the environment in which the bomb explodes. And now Hall's group has developed artificial milk glasses from different cities in case they were nuked. For example, he's created artificial melt glass from Houston and artificial melt glass from New York City. Heaven forbid those yeah. cities are attacked, but uh, now we know what the melt glass would look so like. So how are they different? How do they decide what the formula was for this melt glass? They take into account the local geology and the construction materials that predominate in a city. For example, Houston is a very glassy architecture. And New York is a very iron-heavy architecture. So, in fact, the artificial melt glass from New York is much darker, almost volcanic-like. It's a little bit depressing. It is pretty depressing. So if they can construct these melt glasses based on what they know about a city, what do they learn about a detonation from this? The melt glasses will vary depending on the bomb specifications. So that will be very helpful in determining if there were a nuclear terrorism attack on the United States, the particular kind of melt glass that the bomb left behind, that can be another piece of the puzzle in determining what type of bomb it was and who was responsible. Hmm. And what about this eerily named discrete oculus system? This is something that's already been installed in some cities around the U.S. What does it do? Yeah, I love the names that the Defense Department comes up with for these projects. So Discrete Oculus is the name of a new sensor array that is deployed in major U.S. cities. It is already being deployed now, cities like New York, Washington, etc. It is not fully operational, still going through testing. There was a major simulation exercise last summer to test the discrete Oculus system. So these are sensors that have been adapted from the Cold War testing days that will 
if there were a nuclear strike in one of these cities, they would pick up the signals and help the post-detonation forensic scientists determine what kind of bomb it was and who was responsible. So discrete Oculus, it's going through testing. It's going to be fully operational, they say, in 2018. And the Defense Threat Reduction Agency specifically is creating a smaller portable sensor array with another cute name called Minikin Echo that will be deployed at major events like the Olympic Games. Wow. Um, These different approaches can tell us something about the source of the radioactive material and maybe the kind of weapon used, but will this be enough to pin down who pulls the trigger? Probably not. This will all be very important information for determining the kind of bomb. But let's face it, the uranium bombs, it's called the gun-type bomb. It's the simplest bomb in terms of sophistication. Any terrorist group with access to the Internet... (laughs) It can find the schematics for this kind of bomb and mm-hmm. plausibly build one. So just identifying, say, the bomb in a detonation on U.S. soil as being a uranium gun-type bomb is not enough. You also need to combine this information with intelligence. So whatever U.S. intelligence has been picking up about the activities of Islamic State group and others, that will help narrow in on who might, may have been responsible. So we've mentioned intelligence. We mentioned Department of Defense. How easy was this story to report? I mean, I assume a lot of what you're interested in learning is classified. It certainly went up right up against the border of non-classified and classified information. So the scientists I interviewed in the Defense Department and the national laboratories, they had to be cleared to speak with me. And they know what can be publicly revealed. Certainly some of the questions I posed, I could not get answers to. But I was struck by what was a fairly remarkable willingness to cooperate with me on the story and get out this information. I think there's a lot of pride in the Defense Department that they've been able to put together these sensor networks and that the simulation itself that ran last summer, they deemed to be pretty successful. So that did not receive much coverage at all. I don't think the mainstream press picked up on it last summer, but I think there's a lot of interesting science going on here. And we were able to touch on a piece of that. All right, thanks so much for talking with me. Really a pleasure. Thanks, Sarah. Rich Stone is the international news editor here at Science. His story on nuclear snooping is part of a package covering cutting-edge forensics, including Bitcoin crime, the trouble with DNA evidence, and reforming the statistics that make forensic identifications work. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and many other places, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, 
is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.